So the bombing is an important episode of The Next Generation, and it's an important episode for one reason. It was written by Ronald D. Moore. Okay. You don't know who that is. I don't think I do. Wasn't Well, he was a, a scriptwriter who wrote for The Next Generation, who wrote for Deep Space Nine, who wrote for Voyager. Uh, he's, this was the beginning of his long 10-year career with the Star Trek franchise. He was very instrumental in Deep Space Nine. Uh, so you will get to know Ron Moore very well. Okay. He was also the guy behind the uh, reimagined reboot of Battlestar Galactica. Okay. So, so I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Uh, yeah, we can, uh, this is not really a Battlestar Galactica podcast, so let's just leave that aside because I don't want to make people angry. Uh, <laughs> I feel I was, like there's no right opinion on that. So I, said, I don't really like Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> uh, or I like the first two seasons and the show went off the rails. But this is not a Battlestar Galactica podcast. It is not, no. So... It's kind of interesting how he got involved in the show, actually, because he was dating a woman who worked on Encounter at Farpoint, the pilot of The Next Generation, and he was a huge original series fan. So she basically said, hey, I can get you a tour of the of the of the uh, uh, Starship Enterprise. I can get you a tour of the set. So he said, "Okay." Uh, he decided that what he wanted to do was write a spec script for the show. He handed it to the guy who was doing uh, his tour. Turned out to be one of the uh, uh, assistants for Gene Roddenberry. The guy read the script. He liked it. They put it into a pile. They never did anything with it. Okay. This was during the second season. And uh, I tell you this because I think it's it's an interesting... It, it's indicative of how the show was, was not working in the second season. And I think how the show started to work in the third season. You know, because the bonding is also the first episode that, that Michael Piller was the, uh, was the showrunner for. Okay, and, and he's, he, he was the kind of person who saw Joe Piscopo and thought, no, this isn't a good idea, but, like, that that was that was taken in, in favor of this one, and this was a very good episode. Yeah, it was a very good episode, and, you know, so Michael Pillar comes on the show, uh, very famously, he said, look, they didn't leave us anything. I think, I think honestly, Tracy Torme was trying to, you know, torpedo the show. Um, they left no scripts at all, which, you know, they, they did Shades of Grey, so, of course, they had no scripts to yeah. do. Um, he found the script in the pile. He really liked it. And I think it really goes along with, with Michael Pillar's sensibilities, right? Because yeah. he was the guy that wanted to do a show about character-based drama and how this was going to affect the crew as opposed to Alien of the Week. Well, yeah. And this is, is a, it's a really important evolution, I think, in the show's development. This is an episode that, in the, and again, in the grand scheme of things, turns out to have very, very low stakes. The stakes is whether a boy with an ugly nose gets to live on the Enterprise or not. That's really what this episode is about in terms of plot. And yet, it does feel like a major conflict. It's a conflict that every single character has some kind of connection to or some kind of feeling about um, and some very strong feelings about for obvious reasons. And it's a very it's a very creepy episode in a lot of ways. I mean, before it's kind of really revealed what this alien is, it's... It's a really threatening, disturbing presence on there. I mean, there so, is something very wrong about what it's doing. I do want to get back to the character stuff, but I, I think it's interesting that you say the alien is, is creepy. Do you, you found the alien creepy? Well, I mean, here we have somebody who looks exactly like a woman who's dead and, you know, claiming to be this person. And as far as we can tell, has all her memories, is, I mean, her own son does not know at first the difference between her and his real mother. I mean, is, we, we assume this is an almost exact likeness. And there is something a little threatening about that. Hmm, that's interesting because uh, I, you know, I, it's funny. I hadn't really remembered a lot about this episode. I, I sort of had, had seen it, I think, maybe a year or two ago. Uh, I didn't really remember the twist. Uh, you know, the twist is very sort of non-confrontational. Well, but it's certainly not anything like The Survivors, which was kind of a Twilight Zone-esque yeah. episode of the show. But... You know, sort of, I guess, two-thirds through this episode, I, I wrote in my notes, I said, oh, I think the alien is feeling guilty. Yeah. And so I think it's interesting that you thought that the alien was, well, was creepy or malevolent or you time. wasn't sure what, what the alien was doing, right? Because I think one of the one of the strongest parts about the episode is that, you know, it's it's there's a lot of stuff going on, right? There's a lot of stuff about grief. There's a lot of stuff about yeah. death being the ultimate mystery. And this is what, you know, we don't know what's happening. Um, you know, this this boy is dealing with the death of his mother. And the alien doesn't understand that because the alien is immortal. Yeah. Uh, and the alien is, is a race of beings on this planet that is energy, which I know you love. Yeah. But they were in some sort of war with the inhabitants of the planet that left this device that killed his mother. And 
you know, I, I just think it comes, what, what ends up happening, of course, is that, the, you know, Picard and Troy and Worf and everybody else are, are able to convince this alien presence that this is not the way to help this boy, yeah. that he needs to deal with this because this is a fact of, 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 of a human's life cycle yeah, yeah, and yeah. of a Klingon's life cycle as well. Well, yeah. And I mean, to a degree, you say this, the, you know, the is immortal. I mean, this this entity might not understand the concept of change in a way. I mean, I, I think really to a degree it believes that it's doing the right thing because if this boy is going to be 12 years old forever, then yes, he needs his mother around. And if his mother is not there, and if it's their fault that they've taken his mother away, and if they're able to provide a facsimile, then yes, it is their responsibility. That is making it right in a way. And yet if he... You know, you, you, but 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 as they point out, you know, he's going to grow older. He's going to need to have friends. He's going to want to get married. He's going to want to have a job, and they can't necessarily do all of these things. I mean, I, I like that moment when they're saying that, and the alien is thinking, "Oh shit, we have a lot. This is a lot bigger of a task than we realized." I mean, I think they genuinely think that all they need to do is provide this room and be this person and have the cat, and that's kind of what they need. That that's it. It's a very cute cat, too. Oh, it is Patches. Yeah, I think that's interesting because a lot of what the episode is dealing with is is guilt yeah. and is sort of feeling responsible for things, right? And the aliens feel responsible for the death of, of Jeremy's mother, Marla, because they were engaged in yeah. this war that ended up, you know, in effect, you know, his mother was a was a casualty of the war, you know, hundreds of years yeah. after it ended. Essentially, they... Worf, yeah. Worf feels guilty and responsible because he was the, the, the person who was leading the, the away mission. Picard feels responsible because he is the captain of the ship and, you know, sent his mother... Yeah. To, on this doomed mission so and, and 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 i mean the thing that she dies from though i mean i think it needs to be stressed it's a total freak thing she essentially steps on a landmine that hasn't been diffused and that just everyone forgot about and that nobody right. could have i think they make it very clear that nobody could have seen it coming it was just no they they do make a point of saying that and jordy is the one who says it where he's you know i think this is maybe the one line in the episode he has but he says something about it's some sort of subspace cloaked mine and nobody found it because yeah they, they, it wasn't able to be found. when they knew what they were looking for they right. find it but you know again there was no there was no way of predicting it it was just at some point and i think they make it clear in this episode if you're working for the federation there is a not in, you know there is a not impossible chance that at some point you're going to roll a 20 and die you know that's just and that's what happened she did a critical failure and that was it and it's nobody's fault really I mean, every, everyone's feeling at fault for an for an accident, right? Because they think they want to put sense to this accident in a way. Yeah. Like, if 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 any character can say, you know, well, you know, it was my negligence that let you know the energy beings want to say, like, look, we started this war and we didn't defuse this. It's our fault. You know, Worf is saying, no, I wanted to see that it's my fault. You know, Picard is saying, no, I should have known. It's my fault. You know, but yeah, it's no one's fault. This is just. And, and I think it's interesting in a way that that the character of Jeremy is almost incidental to his own yeah. episode because he's – everyone is reacting to the situation that he's in and everyone I, – yeah. I believe that everyone wants what's you know best for him. They want him to heal. Um, and it's certainly Troy, of course, does because she's counseling him and this is what she's trained in. But, you know, there's that there's that exchange with Picard and Troy very early on in the episode in the turbo lift where, you know, Picard is saying, look, there, this this decision to have children on, on starships is questionable. You yeah. know, it's it's the first indication that Picard perhaps does not think this is a great idea. You know, I think it's interesting. And, yeah, I've been saying that since the beginning. And well, what I what I find interesting about that is the idea that in the future death is is much more matter of fact. I think people, ex- there seems I don't know to if be it's in the future or if it's in well, Starfleet. It's, I think that there's I, no, I think there seems to be some sort of indication that, you know, because he doesn't seem exactly, Jeremy doesn't seem exactly like, uh, he doesn't seem to have the reaction that we would expect him to have. Right. And, you know, Picard is saying, and, and Troy even says this where, you know, this is understood, you know, Marla understood the risks. Yeah. She's a Starfleet officer. Um, but to a certain extent, Putting children in that position yeah. uh, 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 is is difficult because they're not really able to give consent to this. And 
in effect, what's happening is Jeremy is in a position where he now is an orphan. He would be an orphan anyway, let's not forget. But he's he's there in the moment dealing with this yeah. in a way that he wouldn't be if he was on Earth living with his aunt and uncle, which is where he's going to go. Well, it's, yeah, it's interesting that they have, he has a line at one point like, oh, I know what death is. I, they tell us about it in school all the time. I mean... That's a very telling line that, again, I, I didn't take this as the future. I took this as just, you know, I, I, I would assume, you know, in real life military, you know, kids probably get a very different view of death in general. I mean, especially this is a kid who's – he already went through this with his dad. This is the second time. So, I mean, to a degree, he is a little – not necessarily desensitized, but he knows what he's supposed to be. And, I mean, Wes, Wesley even goes through this and he says, you know – you know, he basically says, like, everyone wanted to be strong, you know, and I was, and I didn't really know how to feel. And, I mean, this is – and it's interesting that in this episode, he is finally dealing with the emotions of his father's death in a way that he kind of hasn't had the license to before. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, there's a lot There's a lot in this episode, and the episode puts a lot of stuff in here. Yeah, it's a very and, dense episode, which I liked about it. Yeah, and there's no real indication given that, you know, Wesley is sort of – dealing with this differently because because Beverly is back either. I mean, because I can see yeah. a different way this episode would have gone if Beverly wasn't there. Yeah. Because Wesley has this very interesting exchange with her yeah, where, where they're they... talking about, do you ever think about him? And, and you get the sense that, that, yeah, this is one of kind of the... I, I can see this not being something that they talk about much. You know, this is something that they, for both for obvious reasons, don't really want to put on the table. And this is a moment where... They can't do but deal with it. Yeah, and you know, and Wesley, Wesley, and, and I, I don't think Wesley, I don't think wants to deal with it. I no. think you know, Wesley sort of. I think you know, it seems to me that Wesley, you know, cemented over his feelings about his father's death by even says in the episode doing what was expected of yeah. him, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's never really fully dealt with that, and so there is a lot of I think trauma there, which. You also have, hasn't been healed. You also have to remember how I wonder how much Beverly showed her grief before this moment to him because, you know, I mean, she does say like, you know, the thing with Jeremy is he doesn't have anyone. You and I at least had each other, you know, and we knew that. Yeah. But, you know, I do. Again, given that he was a lot younger, it's not impossible that, you know, Dr. Crusher had to feel like, look, I can't really be that broken up. You know, I need to show my son that, you know, you can do this. Like I can see that being part of her reaction. So yeah, maybe that was just, I, I think this episode implies that they dealt with it poorly. They didn't really deal with the emotions. And now like Wesley knows what years later, and that's kind of part of, again, they're all seeing Jimmy as themselves when this happened. War Jimmy, <laughs> Jeremy, whatever the hell his name is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, both Worf and Wes are treating him in a way that, you know, it, what did I want people to say to me when this was happening to me? I mean, I think that's what they're thinking of, you know? That's an excellent point. And I think, you know, what that really indicates is the show in the first two seasons built up a lot of interesting backstory that they never really did anything yeah. with on an emotional or character level. And it's frankly astonishing to me that this episode you know, Ron Ronald Moore comes in and is able to, and of course, you know Michael Pillar and the Linda Snodgrass, uh, who who sort of you know doctored this episode and rewrote it, um, also had a big hand in this. But they yeah. take all of that. There's a, there was a lot of there was a lot of interesting meat to these characters that they weren't using in the first two seasons. Well, frankly, I wish that Yara had been around because they could have done something with her past. And she even gets mentioned in the episode. I love that. That, that they're able to use all this stuff in a really interesting way and to say interesting things about all of that. And, you know, we haven't really talked about, about Worf, but, you know, the fact that Worf is an orphan yeah. has sort of been incidental to the show at this point. He kind of has talked about it a couple times, but not very much. Yeah, we've said that that's kind of why he wants to act super Klingon, because he was raised by humans. He does live among humans, but, you know, he is different and he is kind of, yeah. And, you know, Worf, Worf had a couple of episodes. I mean, you know, he's kind of gone from being a character that didn't really have much of a point in the first season to being the tactical officer once Denise Crosby decided to leave the show. And has gone from, you know, the sort of taciturn gruff says a funny line here yeah. and there 
uh, in this episode, he really is able to, you know, my, Ronald Moore doesn't do anything with that aspect of his personality. And he really delves into, I think, the underlying grief and the underlying way that Worf dealt with his own parents' death. And, you know, is able to say there's a lot more to Worf here than what you've seen so far. And and what does that mean for Worf and what does that mean for everybody that has to interact with him as well? Well, you know, a lot of it is we're really starting to understand Klingons in general a little bit better through this. And, I mean, I think, to, you know, the initial presentations of Klingons is that they eat weird food and they're ugly and they're, you know, violent. But the more we see of... I mean, Worf is very, he's a very religious person. He's a very sensitive person. He's very poetic. I mean, he loves, I mean, he's the one who says that, you know, Klingon love poetry is, is gorgeous. And I mean, he is a romantic person, you know, we see. I don't know that I would use the word gorgeous and I don't know that Worf uses the word gorgeous. What what does he say? Like, you know, Klingon love poetry reaches its full flower in Klingon or something like that. He has some kind of line like that when but you have to well klingons also eat live worms so there's there's a degree to which what they say and what we interpret that as is quite different and of course and he is very nationalistic in his way but you know either way i don't think that Worf would find a a german chocolate cake to be delicious that's all i'm saying well but he would find live worms to be delicious the point is he there is a culture of aesthetic beauty while while we would not find it beautiful while we would find it off-putting or disturbing you know this is a society that does base itself on aesthetics to a degree and does value aesthetics yeah and i you know i don't want to discount that because you know this this rostai bonding ceremony which the episode takes its name from and which Worf wants to do and we don't really know a lot about it it seems to involve dressing in a klingon costumes and lighting candles yeah it seems which is a lot (laughs) which is a lot of klingon culture it seems uh (laughs) but you know, I, I I think of the of the the Klingon tea ceremony from the second yes. season, which you know that Pulaski was involved in, and so what that indicates to me, of course, is that there is a lot of Klingon culture which which humanity and the Federation in general doesn't really understand. Yeah, but at the same time, it is possible for humans to find some meaning in it, to find some beauty in it, I, and yeah, that's what I think is really going on. What I, I mean, we'll talk about the tea ceremony for a moment. From the outside, it looks like people drinking poison, and you know, but to I mean, in that scene, I think Pulaski makes it clear, and he explains it to a degree that is, it is a show of mutual vulnerability. It's you know, I think we're learning. We see through Worf some of the aspects of Klingon culture which might seem strange or, you know, again, or violent or scary and are realizing that, no, there is a purpose to this. There is a deeper meaning. There is something spiritual from this. So, I mean, to a degree, see, when we see this ceremony at the end, it's almost like a marriage. I mean, he says to him, you know, now our families are stronger. I mean, that— No, me- that's Jordy and, War- and, and Wesley. Well, uh, <laughs> no, I remember to—I mean, that seemed to me almost like, you know, when you have two— fi- two people getting married, you know, back in the day, it would be for family alliances. That's kind of, it's almost a blood brother ceremony. And I mean, he does say, you know, we're brothers now, you know, that we're honoring our mothers. I mean, they, they, again, it just seems like a marriage between comrades to a degree. And because they both, you know, because both Jeremy and Worf do share this deep pain and this deep, you know, loneliness and this deep isolation it is a way of kind of cementing that understanding between them. And that is something nice. I want you to remember that because that's really, really insightful. And okay. <laughs> you're like, what? Real? I don't even know what I said. Well, because because it, it it's in, it's interesting in light of how Klingon culture developed sure. in the future. Okay. And I don't know that you'll remember that, but I'll try to remember to bring that up, especially because I'm thinking of certain, and I'm sure people that are familiar with Star Trek that are listening to this know exactly what I'm, what I'm thinking of, but there are certain aspects of Klingon culture that, especially in the family realm, uh, are very interesting in light of what you just said. I mean, and, and the other, the other interesting thing, of course, is that Ron Moore, was, was the, a Klingon himself. Was a Klingon himself. Uh, he kind of looks like a Klingon. He's got the hair. And, no, uh, it is. He was very instri- he was very interested in Klingons. I think it's interesting that his first script dealt with Klingon culture and Worf. And he is one of the writers on staff that was. Ve- he was always very interested in Klingons. Did and he Klingon have anything culture to- and developed a lot of it? Did he have anything to do with Star Trek Six? 
That's a good question. Because, I, I mean, that's I, another one which makes it makes that well, warrior-poet aspect of Klingons clear, yeah. I don't think he had any direct involvement in it, but in as much of as course. it used a lot of the yeah, Klingon yeah, yeah. evolution that had taken place in the first four seasons yes. of The Next Generation, yes, he did. Okay, I didn't know if he was... he you know helped on the script or he was... i don't i don't think so okay. no but Just curious. Uh, he may have i don't know um and i guess that you know the 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 interesting thing is you know talking about klingon culture in, in general and how everybody on the the crew you know troy yeah. and picard sort of go okay yeah that's maybe not a you know the bonding ceremony is is well intentioned but maybe you don't want to do that right now um I almost think it's a shame that Pulaski isn't oh, around yeah. because I really feel like if Pulaski was still around on the crew, she would have been the one advocating for this because she known, again, yeah. she had a lot of she had a lot of feelings towards Klingon culture. She was able to appreciate it, and I think that she would have seen that Worf was trying to help in some way. She would have probably known the ins and outs of the ceremony, at least what it's for, what its purpose is, at least the general gist of it, in a way that. You know, but I think it's interesting that, I mean, the characters usually do respect, you know, Worf to the degree that they think he's doing his weird Klingon shit, but, you know, they let him do it because that's his thing. Like, right. um, the episode where, uh, Jordy, Wes, and Data, you know. Coming of age. Yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that was a moment like, we don't get this. This is really weird, but it's important to him and we like Worf, so we're gonna make this possible. I mean, I think to the degree, but I mean, I think it's interesting that none of them tell him not to do the bonding full stop. They just kind of, I think it's interesting that the bonding ceremony doesn't involve pain at all. Well, I mean, at maybe the, they cut away before they, I don't know. It's candles. They're going to pour wax right, on that's, each other. Yeah. That's what the, that's uh, what the end of it is. Uh, I mean, I like that scene between Worf and Troy, because I mean, at first he's saying, you know, oh, I, I have to deal with this. You know, the captain doesn't go around telling his feelings to everybody. And that's true. Like he does want to emulate yeah. Captain Picard. But then, you know, Troy points out like, yeah, but, you know, the captain talks to me like this is the spot where you can do that. That's my role. Like I'm the person that you can tell your feelings to. Like if Captain Picard can do it, you can do it. You can do it, too. You know, and, you know, her thing is, you know, she's saying that. Jeremy is dealing with a lot of a lot of things right now. As it turns out in the end of the episode, he kind of does blame Worf a little bit, even though it's irrational. And Worf does blame himself as well. I mean, that that's that's something that both of them are dealing with. It's and, irrational, but he's also 10 years old. I, mean. I would say it's irrational from both of their sides, but it also – it's completely rational because – you know what I mean? Like it, it's – well, Worf does feel like it, she was under my care. Right. And she died and therefore it's on me. You know, even though every single person on the ship is saying like, look, it's not your fault. Like, you know, really when the captain, you know, asks him what happens, that's his internal review in Korea and he finds he's not at fault. That doesn't change his feeling of guilt towards that. That doesn't change that, you know, no matter how much right. Jeremy knows that, no matter how many people tell Jeremy, look, it was a freak thing. We couldn't have figured that out. No one could have known. And she knew what she was getting, you know, all of that is fine. But yeah, she said, you said he's, he's, he's young. Anybody, you know, not even young. If this happened to anybody, they would feel that way. Yeah. And so there really is kind of. I mean, it, it, you know, she tells Worf, if you make this overture to him, he might completely reject it. And yeah, yeah. at that point, yes, he probably would have because here is the man who killed your mother saying, like, let's be best buddies, you know, now. And it's not until the end of the episode that they've brought that out into the open and they have dealt with it. And they have kind of said, like, look, you know, and Wesley's saying that, like, look, I blamed Captain Picard, but not anymore. I think shows Jeremy, like, look. This is a natural feeling. This isn't – you're not unusual. You're not wrong. It's not like you're doing – I mean I think he might even feel a little guilty at feeling that Worf is guilty. You know what I mean? Like because – Oh, I'm sure there's – I mean that's that's kind that's, of what it is. There's yeah. a lot of conflicting mo emotions about this. It's a clusterfuck of emotions. But I think at the end, Worf and Jeremy kind of reveal to each other, look, we're both as confused about this. We both don't understand and – you know, you talk about the ceremony as this as them recognizing a connection between the two, maybe realizing the depth of their complexity of each other's feelings for that actually makes the bond even stronger. Yeah, that could be. Absolutely. And I think also, you know, it's it's interesting in light of the fact that that Troy 
um, kind of, you know, she, she kind of steps back in this episode and she doesn't, she doesn't do a whole lot. And I think what's interesting well, about that is counsel, that yeah. she realizes that, you know, her role is yes, to be there for Jeremy and to sort of help him if he needs it. But also, um, her role in this is almost to sort of, uh, counsel everybody else who's trying to help Jeremy. That's yeah. That scene at the end, it's almost a group therapy scene where right. every single person in that room I mean, she needs to. Ex- she's helping everybody explain death to themselves, even or and to this alien creature, and to Wes, and to even Captain Card to a degree. I mean, well, because to your point, where where Troy and Worf are talking, and, and and Troy says, "Well, no, you know, Picard doesn't talk to you, but he talks to me." Yeah. Um, what I find interesting about that is that you know we have seen kind of glimpses of that in the past, but. It is interesting that Picard doesn't confide in anybody but Troy. And he has an interesting relationship with Troy that I think is sort of deepened in this episode. And it, it it's interesting that Riker is almost on the sidelines in this episode. Yeah, because actually. you would think of if anybody, Picard would be confiding in Riker, but he doesn't. He has a very... Yeah. He has a very friendly relationship with Riker, but it's very professional. And I think... Troy is the one person that Picard really reveals his vulnerabilities to. Well, I think with Riker, he can talk about tactical doubts. He's he's talked, yes. he's confided to Riker like, I have doubts about this decision I'm making. I have doubts about this mission. I have doubts about this strategy. And, I mean, it very much is Riker's job to, you know— be the, you know to be his second in command strategic wise. So yes, if the captain has doubts, Riker is an excellent person to do that. He is the one who is. You know, he's the only one who's allowed to tell the captain, like, look, this is a bad idea, you know, in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. So, you know, but with Troy, and I mean, Troy is not going to be as good of a strategist, but she is very good for, you know, he does, con- he, he shows her his emotional doubts. And he, you know, when he's dealing with a social problem or a, you know, something that he's dealing with in his own head, she is the one that he deals with that for. And that's, I guess, why she is, you know, I mean, she is sitting at his side in the entire, on the bridge. Yeah, that's good. And I think it's a very strong episode. It's a, it's a great, uh, first hit out of the park for Ron Moore. I also like just one last thing, that moment that Troy says, like, look, um, you know, you know, I deal with these people's pains, but I try to restore them to a state of joy. And my work has its own rewards. And the implication there is that she's feeling every bit that joy. Yeah. I think I kind of like that. Like that kind of make because, yes, as an empath, you know, probably the, you know, she says in, in sadness, everyone's similar, but joy is where people are unique. And so I think that's her way of getting to know people. Like she brings them to a state of joy and that she's able to experience that person, you know, as they are. And I think that's nice. Yeah. No, I think so. Um Seven cat named Patches. I would give it eight and a half. Half a cat? Just the tail. Let's talk about Booby Trap. I needed a few Coconono's to get through this episode. <laughs> this is uh, the beginning of Jordy's oh, God. retconning uh, into... Heterosexual? Yes. <laughs> True, uh, but also uh, sort of a, a bumbling uh, ladies' man uh, who can't talk to women and apparently is someone who has no interpersonal skills whatsoever. I don't know that I like uh, this characterization of Jordy very much, and I find this episode to be immensely creepy. Okay, like... <laughs> and I think it's supposed to be creepy, Well, but... you know, here's the thing. When I was a kid, I loved Jordy because... I liked reading Rainbow. That's like, and I have warm, fe- watching him and especially. Please don't say Jordy and warm feelings in the same sentence. <laughs> it's just not, I don't want, I don't want to hear that. I feel strange, but no. good. No, I don't like Jordy. I, I just have to admit it. He is probably the Chekhov of the next generation. I just don't you, like- you don't like Jordy more than you don't like Wesley? Yes, actually. Really? I think this is a thing. Yeah. Wow. I, I just. I don't like either of them, but yeah, uh, Jordy doesn't do anything for me. I see where they're trying to go with the character, but... I find, well, I find this episode to be problematic for a couple of reasons. And I think, it, I, I do have to say, I think it's its a pretty good episode in a lot of ways. Really? Um, okay. I think that, you know, the show is 
able to do an interesting variation on the booby trap plot. Yeah. Uh, certainly the Jordy stuff doesn't work, but I find all of the the ways in which they're trying to figure out how to get out of the trap and the, the, the way that the trap works and all of the Picard stuff, very interesting. And I think, you know, there's a lot of good stuff there. This is certainly not a great episode of the show, but I think it's, it's, it's decent. I guess. Um, yeah. I think what, what you're reacting to mostly is, you know, they're trying to find, I think they're not even really retconning Jordy as a character in this episode. They're, they're trying no. to give him a personality and yeah. the personality they choose for him is creepy and weird. And I, I, I don't know what they were thinking, frankly. I mean, to, to yeah, I, I get why they want to make him like, I, I, I Jordy, Jordy is very. He has relationships to the other characters. Like you see him, he pals around with you know Data and Wesley, and occasionally Worf. And I think the four of them have a fine dude relationship together. You know, they they shut up. Um, like no, like he. I didn't say anything. But he, yeah, and I can see why that he is the kind of person who he doesn't really have great relationships with women and maybe he is better at his job and maybe he is the kind of person who i mean they're trying to get him in love with the enterprise to a degree and they're you know they they make this you know there is this metaphor attempt at the end where you know this doctor saying well this is you know your ship is every you know is every bit of me this is you know i designed this i made this and you know so yes, every day you're you know fixing the ship. You are interacting kind of with my art in a way, and that is you know the way through which and and all of that is fine, I guess. I I just I just find it really really problematic because it's it's a very it's a very tired cliche. It's that, I mean this entire episode I felt was just doing stuff that this show has done a million times before. And I also feel like, you know, Jordy's characterization in this episode is the engineer who's bad with women. All right, fine, whatever. He doesn't know how to talk to women. He doesn't understand women. He doesn't appreciate women. He doesn't know what to do with them. Uh, okay. Opposite well, of Scotty, sure. I, I guess to a degree, but I mean, I think Scotty was a character that, you know, was in love with the Enterprise and yeah, he had success with women because yeah. you know any anybody could have success with women because it was the sixties and 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 women just needed men. That that's what was going on in the original series, right? I think to a large degree. Yeah, to be fair. And I think in this in this episode, there's a sense that uh, uh, women are much more of their own person, and I think they can reject men. Um, whereas what 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 seems to happen is that. Jordy gets his ego bruised by by the woman on the date that he's on in the beginning which, of the I mean, episode, and he has given her the generic. He gave her the generic date. He gave her a well, long was, walk on the beach and a violet. Like he, it was bad. I mean, he, there's there's no two ways about it. I think it was supposed to be. Oh, bad, oh no, no. I, I guess. But, yeah, he. Well, when you say women have other thoughts, I mean, you're, I think he's going for every. Well, women like romance, and women like the right. beach, and women like a violin player and a picnic lunch. And she sees this guy. I mean, from her perspective, she sees a guy who might be nice, who has a good job, and he just doesn't get it. He I mean, has, we're, okay, we're we're burying the lead here. Um, <laughs> Leah Brahms, the the holodeck yes. recreation of her, not actually the person Leah Brahms, uh, is is basically the ideal woman, right? For, for him, yes. Uh, the personality profile that the computer finds, she's 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 wry and she's sarcastic and she's beautiful and um, she she gets along with Jordy very well and he appreciates very her. Equals. And they could banter. Yeah, they fight, but then they're going to have sex because that's what straight people do, apparently. And but but here's the thing: is that at the very end of the episode. The the holodeck Leah Brahms kisses Jordy, and it is extremely awkward, and it does not look like either of them know how to kiss. And while that may be something that I, I don't I don't know why the computer would do that, but I'm positing that Jordy is a virgin, and Jordy perhaps perhaps has not even really had much experience with 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 making out with women and so he doesn't really know what to do and oh yeah i find that ending very very just it's it's it makes sense to me though to a degree like he's i know it's a cliche but he really does seem like the nerdy guy who just you know what I mean? like well it just you know it makes sense sure but 
we've seen this before, and we've seen it with with Wesley before, an age-appropriate story for that character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas with Jordy, I feel like they're giving him a teenage story, but he's a 35-year-old man. And I guess they're not addressing that in a way. Like, if they had made it clear that, I, I don't know, maybe if... Maybe that could have been a theme. Like he was, he was. Jordy really is a you know a, a seventeen year old boy just who is in a thirty five year old man's body. That's why he feels comfortable hanging out with the you know the actual sixteen year old, the robot, and the the foreigner. Like he, you know what I mean? Was, like he's he really does hang around the outside. There's a very and there's a very easy way to justify this. He was very self conscious about his blindness. Um, he was very self-conscious about his visor. Yes! He spent a lot of time in his room because of that, studying, you know, engineering manuals, you know, went to Starfleet Academy, be, you know, he's, he, you know, he's the I don't, kind of guy who a, machines always made sense to him, but, you I know, think, people didn't. I think he's, I mean, I think he's supposed to be like in his late 20s or early 30s. Yeah. He's very young to be a chief engineer. He's a very successful man. He spends all his time doing yeah. it and he just hasn't really had any time to have experience with women. Okay, fine. Yeah. That's all interesting. I don't have a problem with that. But the problem is the show doesn't say any of that and instead paints him out to be a really creepy man. I mean, I'm thinking about the Minuet and Riker plot. And that's, again, the same basic storyline as that. We do see Riker. I mean, Riker is somebody who has extreme experience with women. I think well, he, well, I think even in the previous episode, he implies that he slept was, with the mother. Yeah. I was you, about to say, you uh, pick that up. Yeah. Too. With, with data and Riker in the very beginning. And, and Riker says something like, we spent some time together. Yeah. I didn't know her meaning, well, but meaning, you know, yeah. P and V basically. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I think he means sex. <laughs> um, <laughs> I know. That's so funny. Um, yeah. I, and I mean, in a way, you know, Minuet is the, you know, is the ideal woman for Riker in a way which, and his, the way that they end that plot and deal with that plot doesn't make Riker out to be creepy. It does make him out to be lonely and the kind of person who maybe is striving for something that he can't necessarily find. Right. But, you but know, I, and it I also, doesn't come off as creepy. It but comes I also, of, I also think that, you know, Riker with Minuet, you know, Minuet is an, was a, was a foil for Riker because Minuet was her own person. Minuet was very challenging to him. And I think also Minuet, frankly, knew how to give a great blowjob. Well, yeah. Uh, I don't think that Leah is necessarily not that in well, a way. Well, here's the thing, though, is that Leah is not a person. I mean, Leah is a holodeck no, recreation of a person. We, you know, and I think what's, what's, what's more, damning about it is that i think jordy forgets that and and you know he's saying things like we're figuring this out blah 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 um you know and and there's there's just a weird sense that there there's a very i don't know there's a there's an undercurrent of not not misogyny or not sexism to the degree that the original series would have it but i think that there is a weird undercurrent of of some sort of sexism in this episode, because in effect, Jordy has created a real doll to and help him to help him solve the Enterprise problems, yeah, then yeah, also yeah. fuck him, and it's just really creepy. And it doesn't deal with the fact, and it, it, it and it would be interesting to have an episode that was aware of that. I guess, yeah, I think that I mean because that I I could see this same exact plot: somebody creating a somebody who does help him solve the problem and is as kind of the ideal woman for him, and dealing with the fact that but this isn't a person and you have created an object in a way. I mean, remember the past episode we just saw was basically saying that a facsimile or reality is not as good as the real thing. I mean, these, both these episodes are very much dealing with the fact that you can have this fantasy that looks every bit what you want, but it's not real. It's not the same thing. There is no soul here in a way. Right. I, I mean, this is, Star Trek, it's very interesting, especially the next gen, is a is an atheistic series that believes that a soul exists. Yeah. And yeah. I think that I think that's very interesting. There is something that is mystic in some kind of mystical, un- ineffable way, there is an essence to people. Well, and I think, you know, that that's that's kind of the funny thing about this in, in general is that, you know, the character of Leah Brahms is basically the perfect woman for Jordy, only she's not real. Yeah. And I think, you know, the fact that Jordy doesn't seem to pick up on that and frankly doesn't even seem to realize it or doesn't even seem to realize that that could be a question 
uh, frankly, is is more disturbing than if he did realize this and just went, well, you know what? She's my perfect woman, I but mean, whatever. This is, is a fantasy. A and bit, let's... He has a little bit of shame because when the captain says, you know, he is and he says, like, oh, I've created a simulation program to figure, you know, like he I don't remember the term that he and when Picard walks in on the two of them, you know, Jordy looks a little embarrassed. I think he does feel realize he. Yeah, and I guess I'm being a little unfair to Jordy because I do think that he does realize that there are some lines here. You know, when she, when the hologram simulation starts massaging his shoulders, he's like, "Man, eh, don't yeah. do that. That's a little strange." Uh, it, it may be more because it's hard for him to think than he actually thinks it's inappropriate. But you know, and I and I get the sense that in general, I mean, I mean, he doesn't get many back rubs from women in general no and i and think even a real woman he might find maybe data would do it for him i don't Aww, know wesley. Uh, or wesley uh but you know i i feel like the show is skirting around the edges of a question that it's not ready to answer mm. and that and that question really is um is it okay that the holodeck can be a substitution for for real relationships and and sort of uh, 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 real sexual uh, needs even. Well, here's the thing we've seen very, again, last week's episode and the survivors, both of which is saying that living in a world of illusions is wrong, and yet you have the holodeck, which is a world of illusions. I don't know that there's, I don't know that the episode, I would disagree with you that the episodes are saying it's wrong. I think they're saying it's unhealthy. I, I guess, you know, that that's... That seems semantic to me, but I I, I don't exactly. Well, I don't. I'm not, I'm not contesting. I that think too that hard. I think the word wrong implies a level of moral judgment that mm. the word unhealthy doesn't. Yeah, that's fair. Um, I don't think that smoking is wrong. Yeah, no, that's I think fair. it's unhealthy. Okay, fair, fair, fair. It's a state of. I think they. I, I I guess wrong in the sense of it's a state of denial. It's living in bad faith, maybe. I mean, it could be unhealthy in that way because it is living in bad faith. If you are staying on a planet saying, this is my wife, this is my house, this is our garden, but I Th- think, those aren't real, you know, this is... I don't know how far I want to go down this rabbit hole, but I think acting in bad faith implies a degree of malice or bad intentions no, that aren't I don't, I don't there. Think necessarily. I think it's... Well, we can indeed do yeah. We can agree. Uh, say that that's a, yeah, this is a obscure philosophical point neither of us are really equipped to deal with. Wow, we trek about going what? down into obscure philosophical tangents? That, that's never happened before. Uh, folks, I don't know why you like this, but we're really happy that you do. Continue. Um, I'm not sure I have much else to say um, on this point. Okay, well... Let, let's move aside from the Leah Brom stuff for, for a few minutes because I do want to talk about the booby trap and I want to talk about the Picard stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, the booby trap stuff is, is fairly perfunctory. I, I mean, think I'm it's, gonna... it's, 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 it's something that the show has done before, um, <laughs> although it does allow for a couple of nice Picard character building moments. And I think this is why I like the episode because I think a, a, a first or second season of this episode version of this episode uh, would have left out a lot of the character stuff and would have been about the booby trap. Whereas in this episode, yeah, we get Jordy the creeper, which is problematic, but we also get uh, uh, Picard's love of archeology span coming back. Yeah. You know, we get Picard's love of adventure and love of, of, of exploration coming back. You know, we get this nice character beat where he, he, he reveals that he used to make ships and bottles and, you know, O'Brien. <laughs> said, I used to I make do ships like and it. Bottles. I was like, did anybody make ships and bottles? I was never a boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Worf says I didn't play with toys. Yeah. Uh, Riker thinks that O'Brien's brown nosing saying that. I, I was going to say he nice. looks like, what the fuck are you? Yeah. Yeah. And so, and you know, O'Brien's just like what I did. You yeah. Know, I don't know what you it's want from me. Fun. I was five. <laughs> yeah. And I also think it's interesting that incidentally, um, I don't know if you noticed this, but O'Brien has one of the new style uniforms. Uh, I don't know. It's just, Something to keep in mind, maybe. You know, maybe he's important enough to get a new style uniform. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, I don't know what role he has. I, I don't know if this is just kind of he's a sec- – I mean, I, I will get the sense he is a fairly secondary character. But, you know, I I, I do like that he is a character. He does have a – you, you know, I like the once an episode when we see O'Brien doing something. Yeah, and I think it's nice. Because it's just nice. I think it's nice to have that kind of character. Yeah. And I think it's nice to have that kind of actor because he allows for the show to feel a little more real than if we had a different person in that role every week. Well, I mean, it's like, yeah, it, it, it's... It, it, impl- it implies that there is a world, a, 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 yeah. a coherent and cohesive 
you know, world outside of the main character. They have, there is somebody, you know, transporter room three always needs to be staffed by somebody. And, you know, during the major shift, it happens to be O'Brien. He wakes up every day, he showers, he goes to transporter room three, he punches in, you know, like it makes it seem like there is a routine going on. Like he does live on the ship and he does have a job, you know, it's like how Guinan is always the bartender at 10, four, you know, they know who's going to be at what spot at what time, you yeah. know, it's their yeah, role. Absolutely. And yes, transporter room three and the bar aren't huge, you know, parts of their lives. It's when they need to go someplace, but you know, I like that they know who they're, they know who their conductor is, and they say hello every morning. You yeah, know what I mean? That, yeah. That's basically what that is. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, I think also, you know, we haven't mentioned the fact, you know, speaking of that, that, that Guinan's in the episode. Oh, yeah. I think, you know, it's it's kind of strange that they would get Whoopi Goldberg to do this episode because in a lot of ways it's kind of a weak episode. And, you know, I but, but, but she is kind of interesting in that uh, – she allows for Jordy to kind of realize that he's trying too hard and maybe that's a way forward for him. Yeah. I thought that And then also that, you know, the whole bald man thing. So is she implying something about Captain Picard, by the way? I don't know. What do you think? Because I got that you know, I, I I got that sense that, you know, said a bald man was very kind to me when I you know, took care of me when I was in a bad spot, you know, and it's not impossible that, you know, Picard happened upon Guinan and in some kind of thing. It's like, look, I need someone to bartend. And, you know, that was, you know, that was what she needed. You know, she needed a job and he gave her one. Like, I don't know if, you know, that's what they're implying by that or part of the reason that she's fond of Picard. Now imagining Picard in a job interview with Guinan. <laughs> I don't know why. And she, and she wears her, she wears her dressiest hat. <laughs> Listen, do you keep your bar clean? Yeah. I keep this place very I run a clean place. You're hired. You know, but I guess there's a there's a degree to which, you know, Guinan's appearance in this episode yeah. perhaps is not as incidental as I first made it out to be, because of course she does have a role in the show as the you know, sort of wise person who is giving advice that necessarily people open up to her in a way that they're not yeah. going to open up to Troy, for example. I don't, oh, yeah. I don't see, you know, Jordy having this conversation with Troy. Um, and also I think it goes along with the idea that, uh, you know, people, you know, with her comment about bald men and she's attracted to bald yeah. men, you know, there's this idea that the show is allowing for a greater variety of 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 women in the yeah. show. You know, I think it would have been a much different episode if that conversation had not happened, because I think Jordy is able to what that scene really demonstrates is that Jordy is able to have a normal and, and healthy is, yes, relationship and conversation. Yeah. She says that with a woman, it's just that he's trying too hard. And I and think so she also I makes think... it clear that occasionally there's some, a woman who just isn't into you just for something that you have no control over and for no real reason. You know, I think she makes it clear, like, look, I like ball guys, ball guys. And I, that's my thing. Like when I, you know, right. if I see a ball, if I'm in a room full of guys and one is bald, he's the one I'm going to focus on. Like, right. It's nothing to do with you. You know, sometimes it just doesn't hit. Yeah. And, you know, don't feel bad about that because he is feeling kind of bad. And, you know, I think she's kind of implying like, look, for whatever reason, she's just not into you, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Have your drink and move on, you know? And I think, you know, in in, in, a, in, in a certain sense, and I guess to wrap back around to the Leah Brom stuff, that it is interesting that this is a character, this is a woman that Jordy isn't trying with. And in effect, she's falling in love with him, even though it's a computer well, program. But you know what I mean? Like, it's they have something else to talk to because, I mean, again, she he thinks again from the beginning, he thinks a woman wants a picnic on the beach with a violin player. And, you know, who knows? We don't I mean, we know nothing about Christy or whatever her name is. But I mean, I'm sure she, if you asked her, what, what would you like? a You know, what would a good date be for you? She would have an answer. And if Jordy had provided that. She might have been in a different, you know, mood about that. So, I mean. Maybe she really likes, you know, like Klingon calisthenics. Exactly. You know? If he'd taken knows? her to a Klingon wrestling match, you what know, it, she would have been. If, if Jordy would have said, hey, Worf, can I borrow your uh, your weird Skeletor uh, Look, exercise Look, you know, we're going to go to a Stratagema contest, worked, you know. Hey, it worked for Kay Lair, yeah. so why not? Um, I mean, I mean for, for Leah, obviously, what her thing is, she really likes talking about starships, you know, and fixing problems and engineering stuff. And that's something, obviously, they have that in common. They, they, he doesn't, he doesn't have to try to, to 
hold her interest because he they just they have the same interest. And wait, I'm waiting. I'm gonna blow your mind. Ooh, uh, in the same way that Jordy perhaps realizes by the end of this episode that the way to get success romantically is not to try so hard. I think it's interesting that the way that the ship is able to get out of the booby trap is instead of trying to overpower it and try too hard, it steps back. And it turns everything off and it says, okay, we're just going to let us glide out of here. And we're not going to try to escape. And that's the way they get out. Yeah. Actually, wow. Wow. And it's called the booby trap. And no, I'm not going there. Please don't. No. Uh, (laughs) Finally, there, there's an interesting piece of trivia, which I think you'll find interesting. Do you remember the uh, the episode, The Ultimate Computer, with, uh, yes, with Daystrom? Very much. Are you lying to me? No, no, no. That was the one where um, they were just like, he, no, I actually don't remember that one. The Duotronic Computer and the guy comes to refit the Enterprise. Yes, in yes. The no, and it. Um... They originally wanted the character of Leah Brahms to be, I believe, his daughter or granddaughter. Oh. Uh, but um, they didn't realize that they had already cast the actress, and so uh, they didn't. What they didn't realize that they wanted to do that, and they would have had to have cast a black actress. So instead, they made this new character. Oh, I didn't. Yeah, I just oh, thought that no, was that's actually thought... kind of cool. Yeah, so they actually made her go to the Daystrom Institute instead. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that would have been a nice little thing, but at the same time, you know, it's... And it's... I think it's also, you know, I bring this up only because um, it's, an, it's an interesting piece of trivia in and of itself, but also I think that the show is finding its voice and it's finding its yeah, footing and it's, and it's finding, finding that it's world more... Building. World building and also that it's more comfortable bringing in aspects from previous Star Trek yes. because that's something that the show in the first and second season pretty much stayed away from. And now I think this it's first starting to take its first steps into doing that more and more because it is starting to become its own thing again even something incidental like when you know dr crusher mentions the pulaski method or you know stuff like that they things that people do have ramifications and even if they're minor ones and i yeah i like that it makes each episode feel a little less self-contained yeah or at least and at least less less isolated yeah absolutely you know dr daystrub again if whether it's his granddaughter or whether he founded a or there was a school named after him or whatever, you know, however exactly that ended up happening. I mean, it's a throwaway line, but we can all, you know, imagine our own, you know, sense of that. And that's, again, that's nice. That shows that this is a place. This is, these people stay. Yeah. Yeah. And that there's a sense of history. There's a sense of continuity. And that at the end of the day, everybody's sort of in on this together. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things about Star Trek is that everyone is in on it together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll give this one five booby traps. This gets three cocononos. Cocononos. I really, I don't know what a coconono is. I really kind of have. I want want to have one though. I, 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 I think I don't know if it was something he was making up or what. Like and this was an episode where they made shit up because she said she was going to make him fungili, and as far as I know, that's not a real food. So. I was going to say scungil is the thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's going on. Anyway. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Maybe it means, you know, I'm going to make you something jewelry. Moving on. Next week, we talk about The Enemy and The Price. You're right. These are really shitty titles. They are. There's a long <laughs> string of them. We'll see you then.